This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we hear from Professor Eddie Schwartz, an Israeli tropical disease expert, who says he has new proof that a drug used to fight parasites in third world countries could help reduce the length of infection for people who contract the coronavirus. Professor Schwartz, founder of the Center for Travel Medicine and Tropical Disease at Sheba Medical Center in Tel Hashemer, has completed a clinical trial of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration-approved drug Ivermectin, which is a broad-spectrum antiparasitic agent that has also been shown to fight viruses. Also in this episode of Inside COVID-19, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg about how the spread of COVID-19 appears to be slowing as vaccine rollout ramps up around the world. Also coming up on this show, we hear from Discovery's Head of Legal Services, Harry Joffe, about how COVID-19 is changing attitudes to wills and life cover. He tells us about an estate preserver that has been launched to help cover the costs associated with dying, including the expenses of setting up trusts to safeguard and manage finances for beneficiaries. First, the Inside COVID-19 news making world headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. As of this week, the number of COVID-19 cases around the globe exceeds 113 million. Deaths have passed 2.5 million. In South Africa, about 50,000 people are reported as having died of COVID-19. The US has the highest number of deaths at 508,000. Brazil has the second highest number of deaths at more than 251,000 people. On the vaccine tracker, more than 225 million shots have been given worldwide. Asia-Pacific continues to lead Bloomberg's measure of the best places to be in the pandemic era, with New Zealand in pole position on the COVID resilience ranking for a fourth month. It is followed by Australia and Singapore. Bloomberg reports that Senegal is sending 10% of the vaccines it received from China last week to Gambia and Guinea-Bissau to show solidarity. Hong Kong will quarantine people who have been in close contact with COVID-19 patients in the seven days before the onset of symptoms, up from the current two days. Ireland is seeing a big drop in virus cases among healthcare workers and residents of care homes, showing the apparent effect of vaccines. Bloomberg reports that there are about 60 frontline health workers infected now, compared with more than 1,000 just a few weeks ago. Indonesia is letting private companies run their own vaccination programs alongside the governments to accelerate Southeast Asia's largest inoculation drive. Private entities must use a different vaccine supply from the government's stockpile, provide the shots for free and submit data of the recipients to the health ministry. More than 6,600 firms have said they are keen on the private vaccination program, which is set to need about 7.5 million doses. Indonesia aims to vaccinate 70 million people by August. U.S. hospitalizations for the coronavirus have plunged more than 50% from a mid-January peak as the number of patients exiting California hospitals accelerated. This is according to data from the Department of Health and Human Services in the U.S. Not a single case of influenza has been detected by public health officials in England for the past eight weeks, 
with infection rates at historic lows amid the ongoing COVID-19 restrictions. That's according to the agency AFP. The social restrictions brought in to curb transmissions of coronavirus, combined with increased uptake of the flu vaccine, have both been credited with driving down infections. Thousands of swab samples are processed and analysed by scientists at Public Health England every week to survey the prevalence of different respiratory diseases in the population. As vaccine rollouts gain momentum, governments worldwide are looking at ways for people to prove they are inoculated against the coronavirus, raising logistical and ethical concerns about whether others will be excluded from daily life. The UK government recently announced it will consider whether Britons will need proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test to visit bars, return to the office or attend theatres and sporting events. In Israel, a vaccine passport was launched last week allowing those who are inoculated to go to hotels and gyms. Saudi Arabia now issues an app-based health passport for those inoculated, while Iceland's government is doling out vaccine passports to facilitate foreign travel. Last month, President Biden issued executive orders asking US government agencies to assess the feasibility of creating digital COVID-19 vaccination certificates. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Since April, there have been many trials and analyses suggesting the effectiveness of ivermectin against the novel coronavirus. Professor Ellie Schwartz, founder of the Centre for Travel Medicine and Tropical Disease at Sheba Medical Centre in Tel Hashem, Israel, tells us about his study, which he recently completed. He has been sharing the results with the global scientific community, including in South Africa, and he says he hopes his results will open the gates for more studies and for its preliminary use, especially when we don't have anything else to offer. We decided to go for ivermectin first because as part of the Tropical Institute, we know well the drug and we know well the safety profile of the drug. And when the corona started and there were some uh, new data saying that, showing that in vitro, it's a very highly effective against the coronavirus, we decided to go for it. And you know, if just to remind you that at that time, most of the world were running for the hydroxychloroquine as a savior of the world, and we decided to go for something else. So at that time, we decided to go for it. And the decision was, my decision was, to go for the early stage of the disease, to see whether it actually can act a bit like a vaccine. That means if you give it at the early stage, it doesn't matter if the patient is mild, ill, or even asymptomatic, but maybe by this you can shorten the, uh, let's call it viremic phase, the phase in which he shedding the virus outside, uh, <clears throat> out and contaminated the environment, that can be a great advantage because then it can break the transmission chain and it also may shorten the isolation period which is highly, you know, it has so high economic burden all over the world and also social burden to be isolated for a long time. And just to remind you, at the beginning of the epidemic, people had to be in isolation for at least two weeks and then to wait for two consecutive negative results, which altogether took about almost a month to be in isolation. So to find a drug that within maybe a few days of treatment, you can be free, free of the disease, free of the viruses, it's really it's very valuable. So we went for this, and uh, in Israel, the situation is and was that time also that many people who cannot be isolated at home, they uh, have isolated in dedicated hotels for it. 
So it was more easy to approach several people at once. And therefore, we thought it can be, uh, we can finish it. We can complete the study very quickly. In fact, it did not happen so quickly. It took more than six months because recruit people, recruit patients to any study seems to be almost mission impossible. Everybody has his own reason why he doesn't want to participate. Either his father or mother told him not to go for it or either his family physicians told him not to go for it. So therefore, it took us uh, more than six months to recruit 120 uh, patients. The bottom line is that actually it's really acting well and it's shortened the um, uh, viral shedding uh, period. And therefore, uh, people actually we feel can be isolated if we are going to adopt it can be isolated for shorter time. And therefore, we think that it really can also help to break the transmission chain. And I would say that our study is not a big one, 120, which half of it is placebo, half of it is ivermectin. It's not that big, but it's very encouraging results. And in fact, it shows that this drug has antiviral effect, anti-COVID-19 impact. And in this case, this is, not to forget, this is the first drug with anti-corona effect. All the other drugs that we still use in hospital, mainly among hospitalized patients, are not antiviral. It's mainly anti-inflammatory to reduce the uh, cytokine storm and therefore can help to manage the patient, but uh, it's not antiviral. So this is actually the first proven seems to be the first proven anti-COVID-19 drug, and this is highly important because now you can go for other purpose and to use it. So our plan, for example, is to go to people at high risk. That means people uh, older than 50 with more some risk factors like, you know, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, etc. And to give, to give the drug specifically to this group of population and to see whether we can prevent hospitalization. So again, to give it at the early stage of the disease when they are still at home and to see whether the admission rate will diminish if you compare it to placebo, whether less of these people will need vent uh, artificial ventilations and certainly will reduce uh, mortality. So this is one another aspect that we think should be uh, we should continue to work on the drug. And the other uh, way to use it is as a prophylaxis. And now when I say prophylaxis, it means if you have somebody who was verified to have the disease, he has a family around him, and you give it immediately to the whole member, to the whole family members, and to see whether you really can reduce the number of uh, new infections. In this case, it's again, it can act in a way like a vaccine. And uh, I think, therefore, the, this is the importance of the disease. Now, I know that around the world, in many places, the drug is given. However, without good evidence for it. So I think governments, especially in the Western world, when they have more budget to, to use for it, we should continue and do more properly done studies to show really the effectiveness of uh, of the drug. What uh, is it about ivermectin that is antiviral? 
How did you I discover mean, uh, or think that that might work against a virus like coronavirus? So I'm not sure we know all the uh, effects of it, but ivermectin as an antiviral agent was found to, we found to have antiviral activity many years ago, not uh, only against the COVID, but before RNA, different other RNA viruses, HIV, dengue, for example. And there is a specific proteins which is blocked within the cells and therefore prevent the entrance of the virus into the nucleus site. So that's the main part of it. Actually, in addition to antiviral activity, there are some studies showing that it has also anti-inflammatory effects. So therefore, even in severe patients, at the stage where the virus, it's not the main issue, but more is the cytokines and the inflammation which happen, ivermectin may have a role also. But again, I would start with the early stage of the disease because it may change deterioration to severe disease, may decrease mortality, and again, may help to reduce isolation time. Now, people ask, uh, at least in Israel, that you know the vaccine campaign is so rapidly go over the country. Why do we need the drug if we have the vaccine. So I think there are a few answers for it. First, if you think worldwide, not only on Israel, I mean, the time until all the entire world will get vaccine is going to have a few years. There are millions of people who are going to wait for a long time until they will get the vaccine. That's one thing. The other thing is still the vaccine is not registered for all the populations. We know, for example, kids do not cannot get it. And we are not sure when it will be approved for the children. Don't forget that schools, children going to go back at school, and if they are not vaccinated, it's kind of a pool of the virus which can spread all over. And there are some people outside, uh, even if vaccine is available, that they cannot get the vaccine. So you have a focus of population, subpopulation, who are continue to shed the virus and to, inf- and to infect each other. And therefore, to have a, a drug, and for example, to use this drug in schools, whenever you have a, one case in a classroom and you give it and you prevent the spread of the disease, it's highly, highly important. And not to forget, especially if we are talking to South Africa, there we have variants like the South African variants, which we are, there is a suspicion that maybe the vaccine will not cover it properly. And this is the situation now. Nobody knows what's going to be in the next future. Do we have new mutations with more variability and maybe less effect, the vaccine will be less effective? So I think to have an antiviral agent is highly, highly important in so severe disease. We hope we will not need it in the future, but so far, I think is we urgently need and to continue to work on this ivermectin in the other wings, let's say, and the other, <laughs> other ways that I mentioned that we should continue and do this uh, research. And do you have any idea of how much ivermectin you need to cure COVID-19? What kind of doses were you giving and in what format? Yeah, uh, first we, we use, you know, in, in human medicine, again, I'm not talking about veterinarian, in human medicine we have it only oral. We don't have injectable uh, properties. And in human, the regular dose is 2.2 mg per kg, milligram per kilogram, and this is the dose that we used. However, in many tropical diseases, one dose is enough. We gave it for three days. So it's, let's say, 
up to two to three times more than we use it in a regular way for tropical diseases. Uh, the safety profile, as I mentioned, we knew it before, and it has high safety profile. And actually, even this during this study, when I told you we recruited 120 people, we don't we didn't have any safety issue with the drug. So again, contrary to what happened with the hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malaria, which in some claim that even did not help but even kill killed people, here we don't have the safety issue. So therefore, I will be more reluctant to use it much more easily, even if we don't have yet a strong proof. I think we should try to use it if you can do it in a kind of a, an observational studies and try to make a comparison. Certainly, it will be very helpful and will help to gain more information about the uh, drug. And of the your 120 people in your study, so half of those people got ivermectin. What was the success rate? Did everybody recover from COVID-19? Look, these people mostly were younger at the early stage of the disease. So even the placebo, I mean, there was, uh, we have only two people who deteriorated to be hospitalized and both of them was in the placebo arm. None of them had in the ivermectin. So it's too small sample size to say something firmly about the effectiveness. But we have to remember that in the COVID, in the corona disease, most 90% of the people are recovering. So the, the fact that people with placebo, getting placebo had recovered, this is the natural history. So it, it's not, the point is also whether you can shorten the period of viral shedding, which is highly, highly important from the public health point of view. Why do you think that governments are so reluctant to embrace ivermectin? You mentioned to me that you can't actually treat people in Israel with ivermectin yet for COVID-19. No, I mean, in Israel, and I guess in many other Western countries, many tropical diseases are not available. And nothing to do with COVID, even before. You know, you feel in the Western countries that we don't need tropical medications. So people who are, but somehow the government forget that we are in a period of time in the history that of population movement. We have immigrants, we have businessmen, we have travelers going all over the world, getting disease from the tropics, coming back either to South Africa or to Israel. And we need to have it. However, most of these agents are all drugs with no patent on them, and therefore there is no any good benefit for any pharmaceutical company. And therefore, the whole process of registering drug, which is costly and time-consuming, we can't find any company who will be willing to do it if there is no profit for it. So my feeling, and this is really beyond the COVID issue, is the government has to take care of it. It's kind of orphan often diseases and often drugs, and somebody, the Western countries, Western governments, has to take care of it. And it's not done in Israel and many other places as well. Now, more specifically, again, it's interesting question, how come that you have a drug which is available in many countries, I'm talking now about the ivermectin, costs almost nothing, 
and there's no interest in it. And maybe this is the answer. It's not only the question, this is the answer. It's cost nothing, there's no good profit for anyone, and therefore there's no interest. It's much more, and also much more uh, attractive maybe, to go to a new fancy medication and try to see whether it helps or not. So if you take the remdesivir, which is relatively new, cost 500 times more than the ivermectin, so much effort were put on it, People use it, many uh, hospitals in Western countries use it, despite the fact that WHO declared a few weeks ago that it's proven to be useless. So this is really, I would say, we have kind of psychological aspect, economical aspects, which involved in pure medical decision. And I can say also that, unfortunately, the corona somehow affected the, let's say, the intellect capacity of many people, not only those who were sick, but also the environment. And many decisions are really irrational. If this drug works, and what you're saying is that it does work, this is the drug that could get the whole world moving again very quickly. Absolutely. It's available. I hope that it will be enough for the rest of the world, but it's easy. And again, if there, you know, we need for research to do further studies, we need also some kind of support for the government to say that we need, I'm not talking even on financial support, but even kind of moral support to try to convince the people to participate in these studies. I told you at the beginning that to recruit these 120 took us six months, despite the fact that every day we have more than 5,000 new sick people. So without any kind of encouragement by official governments, official institution that we need you people, not only, you know, there's a big campaign go to vaccine, to be vaccinated, or when it started to volunteer to be part of the study of the vaccine, there was no single word, please come and try to help us to find a drug for the COVID-19. That's never been heard. And I think this is one of the defects which happened during the corona time. And in the future, when we will look back to the corona time and we'll try to learn from it, I think one of the lessons is that we have to invest more, especially in what is called repurposing drugs. I mean, drugs which are already been in use, we know the safety profile of them, try to use it for the next mission that it's needed. So many South Africans resort to veterinary versions. Is there a, a version for animals that humans can take? Actually, I think the answer from the safety point of view, it's probably is okay because it's also done properly. We don't like to do it and it's not legal. But actually, sometimes, I'm, and I'm talking now not about corona, but there are some other parasitic diseases when people can be very sick and cannot have oral drugs. And we used, we asked special permission to use the veterinarian injection to give to this patients in shock. So actually, it's probably not a problem. And actually, also, it gives a big storage of the medication in case there will be a decision. Let's say we are approaching now the WHO to try to convince the WHO that it's good drug. I'm sure that at the moment, the WHO, yeah, the World Health Organization will say that it's proven or it's good for uh, COVID, there will be a huge uh, demand for the drug. And maybe it will not be enough and we will need to rely 
on veterinarian. So I think it's safe, but I mean, other people from the pharmaceutical companies has to answer it properly. So, Professor, this is research that could actually change the world for the better. I mean, what are you doing next in this with your research? Go the the next is to or? publish it, is to, right. to finish writing it. And uh, at the moment that we finish the talk, I will go and continue to write the paper and to submit it and try to do it as soon as possible. Yes, it sounds like it's the type of research that could win a Nobel Prize in due course. That's ah, not really, but I hope it, it can help the people. Next, Jason Gale of Bloomberg discusses what the world is learning about how vaccinations are working. So to what extent can we attribute this decline we're seeing in COVID-19 cases to vaccination? Well, it's difficult to say. COVID-19 cases have been falling for six weeks or so globally, and that roughly aligns with when vaccination programs began. But it's hard to tease out the contribution of vaccines versus factors like lockdowns, double masking and other measures that can reduce transmission. We also don't know yet how good vaccines are at stopping infection. So we've heard that a number of current vaccines are more than 90 percent effective at protecting people from getting sick from COVID-19. But what I'm hearing is that we don't actually know whether they will stop people from being infected with the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. Correct. Development of the vaccines that are being used now started more than a year ago. And back then, the objective was to create vaccines that would stop people getting seriously ill from COVID and needing hospitalisation. And the vaccines do that. But the trials that tested their efficacy weren't designed to gauge their effectiveness at preventing asymptomatic infection. And we know that people who are infected but have no symptoms can still spread the virus to others. And stopping that spread, the spread of the virus, that's critical for getting the pandemic under control. Is that right? Yes, of course we want to stop people getting sick and dying from COVID, but ultimately we want to stop SARS-CoV-2 from circulating. For one thing, we know the more it circulates, the more chances the virus has to mutate and for new variants to emerge. So broadly looking, what are the chances that COVID-19 vaccines will actually stop transmission? Well, data are emerging, and we can expect a lot more information in the coming weeks from countries like Israel, which has vaccinated the greatest proportion of its citizens. As of early February, more than a quarter of people 15 years and older, and 72% of the population over 65 were fully vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And in Israel, the dominant strain there is a variant first reported in the UK. Researchers are seeing signs that the vaccine is preventing infections and COVID cases, hospitalizations and deaths are falling at a much faster rate in those who have been fully vaccinated compared with those who haven't. And that declining rate is is great news. But what about other strains of COVID-19 or other vaccines? There's no comparative data yet to know how the different vaccines stack up against each other and the various strains that are circulating. Based on laboratory experiments and clinical trial data, it looks like there will be some differences. 
But lab studies are a little bit limited as they typically look only at antibody levels in blood samples and not other components of the immune system. So we'll get more information as these vaccines are used more widely in large populations. The other thing, um, the other important thing to say is that vaccine manufacturers are monitoring the data closely and have already started working on new versions and combinations to optimise efficacy as new strains emerge. Looking big picture, do you think there will ever be a point that we can actually eradicate COVID-19? No. Only one human disease has been officially eradicated, and that's smallpox. The world was able to achieve it because we have an effective vaccine against smallpox and only one species known to get the disease, humans. Uh, But we know with SARS-CoV-2, it probably exists in nature, in bats and possibly other creatures. So eradicating it will be virtually impossible. But we know COVID-19 can be controlled as it has been here in Australia. So with safe and effective vaccines that can be shared equitably across the world, we have a really good chance of eliminating it, at least as a public health threat. Coming up, Discovery's Head of Legal Services, Harry Joffe, shares an update on how our attitude to death has changed in the era of COVID-19 and how this is changing product development and innovation in financial services. Harry, you put this product out into the market because there was a vastly increased demand for estate duty services, wills and life insurance because the whole COVID-19 pandemic has fueled our fears of dying. Not really. We've been planning this product for a while from before COVID. It just took us time to get it to market and get the product ready. So we actually wanted to launch it last year before COVID started. It's just taken us time to get it going. I mean, it's just kind of fortuitous that we've launched it right in the teeth of COVID. But really what we wanted to do, and I'll tell you another issue which we're really very big on, is we have so many clients dying and leaving assets to minor kids. That was before COVID. It's even worse now during COVID. Let's say you've got a single mom and she's got a minor child. So she dies and she's got a policy which she makes a minor child the beneficiary of. We had a couple of months ago, mom died. She's got a 10-year-old daughter and she's left a life policy of 2.5 million rand with this 10-year-old as a beneficiary. I mean, that's a disaster. So what do we do at Discovery? We've got three options. We can pay the 10-year-old daughter. I mean, you can imagine that's how the money will be squandered. We could pay the guardian of that 10-year-old daughter. And again, there's no guarantee that the money doesn't get squandered. Or we could pay the guardian's fund in Pretoria. And that, again, is a problem because it's not easy to get the money out. And then if you need money for a living, it's hard to get that out. So we really want clients to set up trusts in their walls to be the beneficiaries of these policies if they've got minor kids. Problem is those trusts are expensive to run. You need a trustee to manage it, and those are not cheap. And that's what this product does as well. It covers the testamentary trust CEBs on these trusts if you use APSA trusts. Well, this is a new one. Nobody's taken it up yet. Yeah, so we went live last week. I think we've sold, I think, about 18 to 20 policies. I mean, it's literally only been going a few days. We're expecting to sell huge volumes, and this is what... I was expecting to ask me this. Why should a client take a state preserver as opposed to a normal life policy? What's in it for the clients? And i tell you what's in it is because this policy is covering a fixed indemnity amount. So we are able to calculate quite accurately you know, what the executive's fees are because we've got our preferred provider doing the winding up. This product is much cheaper than a normal life policy. I mean, just as an example, so you're covering the state of, say, 10 million. Your premium on that 
policy would be about 120 rand a month. So it's way cheaper because it's not paying out like a lump sum life cover. It's paying out an indemnity to our own provider. So we can fund it and finance it quite cheaply. So it's a lot cheaper than a life policy, which is why it's so beneficial. And that's why we're expecting to sell large volumes because it's cheap. It's very easy for the client to understand what they're getting. And also the underwriting is much simpler than a normal life policy. So normally you go for underwriting and medicals and you have you know, nurses sticking injections in you to take blood. Yeah, if your estate size is 40 million rand or below, there's no underwriting. There's just a few medical questions and that's as simple as that. How has COVID changed this underwriting process? Changed a lot because, I mean, it's much harder to get clients to go get bloods done and get medicals done. And also, of course, you've got to create a safe space for them to go and get it done in. So we've tried to do that. We've tried to create a much safer areas for them to get their medicals done. And we've even, in some cases, had nurses go out to clients, but it hasn't made it, uh, made it much harder, put it that way. And in terms of being eligible for insurance, do you load it up if somebody's had COVID? You know, is there a long COVID premium? Right, that's a good question. So I'm not sure actually what our underwriters are doing yet. I mean, it's so new. I don't know how many of our clients that have had COVID have applied for policies, but I haven't seen anything official put out yet. I'm sure they're still working on it, as is the industry. I mean, that's an industry issue. What I love about a state preserver is it's like an end-to-end, because if you think about it, we're encouraging the client to get a will, so he's getting his will drafted for free. He's getting the will drafted by a professional, because that's also really important. You don't have just some layperson drafting your will or someone who's not a professional. So this trust company is a professional drafting the will. Then, just as important, he's getting a professional to wind up his estate, he or she, of course. Uh, you know, so it's not just some, again, some layperson or some attorney or accountant who doesn't specialize in this area. It's a professional trust company to wind up their estate when they die. And then just as importantly, it's fully funded. As long as they've got this estate preserver product, all these costs will be funded. So it's kind of a peace of mind for the client. They know something happens to them. They've got a will. They've got the cost funded in their estate. They've got a professional winding up. So it's really a nice end-to-end solution for, for, for most clients. Two of the other interesting bits that I'm picking up is a lot of business structures are are coming into place. In other words, we do a lot of what we call partnership insurance, where partners insure each other. So if one of them dies, they can buy the shares, buy each other out, and not have the family come into the business. So we've got a lot of those cases, but now suddenly because of COVID and people are starting to die and there's a lot of awareness of this, the issue of contracts is coming up. Have the partners got proper contracts? How are they going to buy each other out? How are they going to value shares? It's almost like the other side of a world, just in the business environment. And I think COVID is bringing that up because now people are dying in such numbers. You've got to have your contracts done. You've got to have your wills done. You've got to have all your, your paperwork in order because you never know when something's going to go wrong. So you're very busy now. It's at the busier end of the sector. Insurance is very busy because clients are, as I say, they're suddenly starting to worry Everyone wants their policies updated. Everyone wants their contracts updated. Everyone wants wills done. Everyone wants things, people want things to be neat and to be up to date. And that's like quite rare for South Africans. So, yes, a lot of requests for partnership policies, for contracts, for wills, for, for everything in that area. Suddenly death has become kind of normal and acceptable, which it uh, wasn't before. That brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next week, I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.